Great, let's pray, shall we? Ah, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for one another. Thank you for, uh, again, this day, this chance to connect with you, to connect with what you're doing across this nation. Father, we really do pray that out of today, there would come advance and multiplication, life change, culture transformation. Jesus, we, we're looking to you to do what only you can do. Lord, we think of that question, can a nation be saved in a day? Lord, we just respond with our hearts, yes. Yes, a nation can be changed in a day. And Lord, we thank you that you call us the salt of the earth and a city set on a hill. And so, Father, we just say, Lord, increase our saltiness, increase the sense of our light shining where you've placed us in our communities. Lord, thank you that we are about a great work with our Father. And so we just welcome you in right now, just in this session. Be with us, Holy Spirit. Speak to us, provoke us, challenge us, change us. We ask in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. All right, so we're, we're carrying on with this question, what time is it? How can, we, how can we build according to what the Father is doing in our generation, in our day? So we've looked at a couple of uh, season transition shifts. And uh, I want to mention a third in this last session that I have uh, with us today. And I, I just want to say this from the start. When you start shifting according to what the Father's doing in a new season, it takes courage. <clears throat> it's, it's far easier just to stay on automatic pilot and do the things that you're always used to doing. Now, some of those things are right. Sometimes we're on a track and you're always meant to be on that track. For example, you're always meant to love your wife. You're always meant to love your husband. You're always meant to do those things. That track is never going to change. The, the, the instructions from the Lord are never going to change on things like that. But there are moments where God just shifts emphasis onto something else and it actually takes courage to shift with the Lord. Have you ever noticed that? Anyone kind of felt the Lord speak something and you've had to make a change and it's taken courage? And in those moments, it's just helpful to remember that history is actually full of experts who didn't jump onto the new thing that God was doing or even what was happening in the earth. Here's Thomas Watson, who was the chairman of IBM. And in 1943, he said this, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. <clears throat> there was a season shift right there and Thomas Watson, for whatever reason, didn't quite kind of capture what was about to happen in the future in the nation. Uh, or Decca Recording Studios, we don't like their sound, a guitar music is on the way out, rejecting the Beatles. Maybe a poor decision in the light of future events. Um, interesting, recently uh, there's a, 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 an amazing kind of milestone broken uh, in this next sli slide. You've got two barrier breakers, two guys who broke something that humanity never thought would be broken. So recently Kenya's uh, Kipchoge ran the first ever sub two-hour marathon. I mean, isn't that incredible? By the way, I've noticed that Dan Hudson has started to run. That is a sign of change, if ever I've seen one. So that's a sign and a wonder right there. Be encouraged by that. Well done, Dan. That's so good. And uh, so Kipchoge, he, he broke like the sub two-hour kind of marathon. This is an amazing milestone. And of course, Roger Bannister on the other side was the very first man to ever run uh, a mile in under four minutes. The interesting thing is that scientists said that it was humanly impossible to run a mile in under four minutes. That's for, for centuries, that was the thinking. Human physiology cannot run sub, sub four minutes in a mile. And so for centuries, nobody did. Until one guy thought, there's a barrier to be broken and I'm going to run through it. 
And in 1954, Roger Bannister ran the very first sub four minute mile, three minutes, 59.4 seconds. Here's the interesting thing. Six weeks later, his record was beaten by John Landy. And then by the year 1957, 16 other runners had also broken the four minute mile. No one had done it in centuries. And then suddenly within three years, there's loads of people breaking the the four minute mile. Why? It shows that the impossibility wasn't in human physiology. It was in here. (laughs) It was in the little gray cells. It was in the understanding. It was in a mentality that actually needed to shift to something new that was happening. Responding to season shifts in God takes great courage. You know, John Wesley would be another great example of that. You know, the Methodist revival really took place because John Wesley changed what he'd always done to respond to what God was doing. Let me just read you a little extract from his diary. Thursday the 29th, I don't know which month or which year, but Thursday the 29th. (laughs) He said, I left London and in the evening I expounded to a small company in Basingstoke. Saturday, Saturday the 31st. In the evening, I reached Bristol and met Mr. Whitfield there. I could scarcely reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields of which he set me an example. I had been all my life until very lately so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church building. Monday the 2nd, at four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile and I proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in a ground adjoining the city to about 3,000 people. What's, isn't that amazing? So, so Wesley is like, I would have thought it's a sin not to preach the gospel unless it was in a church building. But suddenly he saw the seasons changed. <laughs> the father's actually reaching the miners in the fields. He's reaching people out there, not in here. So I need to change with what he's doing. And that takes guts, takes courage. And the, the third area of transition is, I would suggest, a transition of focus from the gathered church to the scattered kingdom. The gathered church to the scattered kingdom. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I love the church. I believe in the church. I believe that the church is the hope of the world. I believe that we are a city set on a hill. I love the church. I give my life for the church. I believe passionately that we are called to be communities of salt and light, people who are called out by God. But I believe one of the things God's recovering to us in this season is an understanding that the church sits under a much bigger umbrella called the kingdom of God. For years, I've, I think I've had that the wrong way around. I thought it's church and then kingdom. I suggest you, you need to flip the order The church exists under something much bigger. God's desire to rule and reign in everything. How many of you understand that all of the church is in the kingdom, but not all of the kingdom is in the church? I'll keep going. (laughs) Stay with me. A few things to consider. Firstly, a kingdom worldview. We know in scripture that the, the two words used for church and kingdom are two very different words. So the word church is a Greek word called ecclesia, which literally means those who've been called out of the world to gather together in a new community, the, the called out ones of God. But the word kingdom is this word baselia, which means rule or reign of a king. And George Eldon Ladd, a theologian, he put it this way. He said, the kingdom is the rule of God, but the church is the society of men and women. And this was Jesus' message and John the Baptist's message when they start their ministry. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Notice that they don't say, repent, 
we're going to plant some churches. Now, planting churches is not wrong. But Jesus and John the Baptist start with this call, repent, which means change the way you think because the rule of God is about to come on the planet. God's reign is about to break in. There are over a hundred references to the kingdom in the first three gospels alone. Both John and Jesus start their ministry with the same call. Jesus spends the last 40 days of his earthly ministry talking about what? The kingdom of God. The apostles continue this theme, over 30 references to the kingdom in the New Testament. And the right reverend David Devonish says this about the kingdom. He says, the kingdom is to be our top priority. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The kingdom is to have far greater priority in our lives than concerns about material things or anything else. It has to be top priority for the church in its mission today. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus says, this is how you pray. Father, your kingdom come on the earth as it is in heaven. If it's not good enough for heaven, it's not good enough for the earth. Father, will you bring your rule, your reign onto this planet? That's how we're to pray for the increase of the rule and the reign of God. I would suggest to you that it's not enough to have a worldview of trying to put more bums on seats in a gathered church meeting. There is something much bigger at stake, which is this. God wants to rule and reign in everything. (laughs) this is what Tom Wright says he says when we say Jesus died for our sins within a message about how to escape this nasty old world and go to heaven it means one thing but when we say Jesus died for our sins within a message about God the creator rescuing his creation from corruption decay and death and rescuing us to be a part of that it means something significantly different so instead of suggesting that we should escape the earth to go to heaven Jesus good news was about heaven coming to earth do you understand that God is not coming just to bless your bible study on a wednesday night he's coming to rule the cosmos That means that God cares about poetry, he cares about art, he cares about teaching, he cares about science, he cares about technology, he cares about music, he cares about the school gate, he cares about the street that you live in, he cares about the gifts that you carry, he cares about the workplace that you go to on Monday morning, he cares about the gifts that you carry with you when you go there, he cares about politics, he cares about governance, he cares about economics, he cares about institutions, he cares about medicine, he cares about the NHS, he cares about all these things because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That means that the holiest moment of the church service is not when you arrive, but when you leave because you don't go to church, you are the church. Did you catch that? You don't go to church. You are the church. The holiest moment is when you leave and you go and bring the kingdom. The reason that you gather is to do what Jesus called you to do, which is to be salt and light on the planet. And we will never change a nation if we just have a gathering mentality. We have to have a scattering mentality. We gather to scatter. We gather to go. That's why this matters. That's why we do things like this. Why? Because you are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus at your desk on Monday morning. That's why it matters. And I think for so long, myself included, church leaders have relegated the call to action to join a rotor on a Sunday morning, be part of our kids' work, tithe in the church, come and get involved in the church meeting. I just want to say I'm sorry because the kingdom is so much bigger than that. Those things are important, of course they are, because it's part of how we express family. It's part of how we express belonging. 
But if that is the only way that you think you can contribute to the kingdom, then you've missed something in God because your workplace is a place of holy, holy anointing unto the Lord because where you go, he goes with you. <laughs> you understand you don't need to feel a tingly feeling to know that the Lord is with you. Where you go, he goes. You carry in your shadow whatever overshadows you which means that he's placed you deliberately where you are to bring the kingdom, to bring the reign and the rule of Christ. It's interesting, even Ephesians 4.11, a verse that we know very well, says that in the church, God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Just if you step one verse back, you understand the context for why God gives gifts. It's this, in order to fill the whole universe. Apostles and prophets aren't just given to make the church gathered meeting great. Their job is to fill the whole universe so that God is praised, God is worshipped, God's influence is seen in every area of the planet. This brings us to our second key, which is kingdom engagement. It's so important that we understand in this season shift, God is calling us to gather in order to scatter and that we are an apostolic people. Now that word apostolos literally means sent ones. The reason that God gives you apostolic gifts is so that we all become apostolic. Okay, try that over here. We are all an apostolic people because you are sent by Jesus. You are sent ones. Your goal in life is not to wait till the day you die and that Jesus calls you up. Beam me up, Scotty, that's what I'm living for. No, 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 no. There is a plan and purpose for your life, which is you are a sent one from Jesus. You are a firebrand from his hand. He saved you for purpose, (laughs) to do what he has called you to do. And of course, this was the original game plan for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, go and fill the earth and subdue it. Multiply, be fruitful. I'll suggest to you that the same Adamic mandate is back on now in Christ. Go and fill the earth. Go and multiply, go and be fruitful. Fill the earth, you're my sent ones. I've saved you in order that you might scatter the influence of the king wherever you go. It's interesting in, in kind of Genesis, when it describes Eden, which I, as I said earlier, the word Eden means a place of delight. But it also says that four rivers flowed from Eden. I'm trying to find the names now. The Pishon, the Gihon, the Tigris, and the Euphrates. The name of those rivers means this, increasing, bursting forth, rapid fruitfulness. Do you get the picture? Delight yourself in the Lord and then from the place of delight, rivers, rapid, increasing, fruitful rivers are gonna flood into the whole earth until the whole earth looks like the kingdom of God. That's how the story started and in Christ, that story is back on. Fill the earth, engage with the world that he has placed you in. You guys doing Okay. And of course, to engage with the world, sometimes you've got to actually answer the questions that the world is actually asking. Do you know, most of your friends that don't yet know Christ are not asking this question, how must I be saved? They're not asking that question. They are not asking the question, who is Jesus? Most of them are not asking that question. Most of them are asking these kind of questions. How do I get free from anxiety? How do I handle my pornography addiction? How do I build a healthy marriage? How do I 
successfully do my work? How do I live with the pressures of modern life? How do I deal with my loneliness? These are the sorts of questions people are actually asking. And I suggest to you that sometimes we need to engage with those questions first before we engage with the eternal destiny of people's souls. <laughs> There's that fascinating story where uh, Saul is sent by his father to go and look for the lost family donkeys in the Old Testament. You know, the, the family donkeys are lost and, and Saul has not yet been anointed as the first king of Israel, but he's sent by his father to go and look for the donkeys. They go and look for the donkeys. And uh, the prophet Samuel kind of is locking into the Lord and the Lord says, right, you need to go and anoint Saul to be future king of Israel. But notice what he does first. He tells him how to find his donkeys. Saul is not thinking, what is my future? Will I be the next king of Israel? He's not asking that question. He's like, I've lost my donkeys. I can't find my donkeys. Anyone see my donkeys? I'm really trying to find my donkeys. I really need those donkeys. They're important to us. What does Samuel do? He's like, you'll find your donkeys here. When you find them, come and see me. Finds his donkeys. Then he gets anointed to be the king of Israel. And he finds his calling. I suggest to you that sometimes you need to help people find their donkeys before you introduce them to their destiny. <laughs> and it's, 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 it's important that we know how to lead someone to Christ. It's important that we know how to share the gospel. That's absolutely vital. But if you don't know how to just simply love someone in front of you, then you may not actually get a hearing for the other stuff. How do you love the person that he's put in your life? How do you express the kingdom to them? How do you engage with the world that he's placed you in? And I do believe that this is an era where God is going to deposit supernatural heavenly wisdom for his people. You know, it's interesting, Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, I think it is, he says, we now have access to the Father by one spirit. Now, that's amazing. You have access to the Father by one spirit. You have access to resources that other people don't have access to. There are heavenly things that he wants to show you for your workplace, for your friendships, for your families. There are keys that will unlock whole communities. Um, I heard a, a guy preach the last, a couple of years ago and uh, he had been traveling to a nation for many years doing kind of tent meetings and preaching the gospel and thousands of people. And for decades, he's been going to this place and seeing lots of people respond to the gospel. But he said he was troubled by something. And it was this. Every time he went back, he said everyone was just as corrupt as when he first went to the country. And everyone was still taking bribes and there was still such dishonesty. And he's like... All these people are responding and putting their hands up in a meeting, but nothing seems to be changing in the culture. And so he began to say, Lord, how can a nation change? I need wisdom from you. And so as he was praying, he felt God say, I want you to get the map out of the nation. So he got a map out. And then the Holy Spirit began to show this guy where some hidden zinc and gold mines were hidden in the nation. That's pretty wild, isn't it? Now here's the thing, God knows where they are. You have access to the Father by one spirit. Wondered if you've ever asked, Lord, where are the hidden gold mines? <laughs> he knows. He might want to tell you. And so he, to cut a long story short, he eventually gets uh, a meeting with a fairly high official in the nation and he gets the map out. 
And as a result, there was the discovery of three gold mines, one silver mine, one zinc mine, two salt mines, and other treasures worth in excess of $500 billion. They also found the location of a hidden Incan city within 18 months of him giving the word to this official. It was a city of 25 square miles that will probably become more popular than Machu Picchu, the number one tourist attraction in South America. And he said suddenly he had an audience with the city. Why? Because he'd engaged with questions that they were actually asking. How can we actually change our nation? How can we inject some economic uh, advance in our nation? Sometimes you've got to actually answer the questions that people in the nation are asking. How do I deal with my social anxiety? How do I deal with my broken family? How do I deal with this stuff? In AD 362, the Emperor Julian wrote this, complaining about the church because they were doing so much to provide for the weak and the needy. This is what he wrote. These impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours also. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. He loved that. Where was the church? Meeting the need in the city. Right at the coalface, there's a need. We're going to be the first ones there. Because I tell you what that does, it gives you an audience to bring change and cultural transformation. Here's, a, here's another friend of a, friend, uh, a picture of a friend of mine. It's a friend of mine called Johan Anderson, and he is a, he's an artist in uh, Los Angeles. He's got a gallery in Los Angeles, but he comes from Bedford, so there you go. Good things come out of Bedford. And uh, he, he's just a, he is a stunning, stunning artist. And um, you know, he, he sells his paintings to people like Arnold Schwarzenegger and George Lucas and all those crowds. He, he's an incredible artist, uh, a Christian man. And uh, this particular picture was a, a picture of a sex worker that was working in the Bronx. And uh, he did this portrait trying to capture some of the, the pain and the angst of working in that industry. And after he finished it, he gave it as a, as a gift to the lady that he'd uh, painted. And she left the sex industry as a result of seeing her own face reflected back to her. Now, here's the thing. You don't get Johan Anderson to paint in your church on a Sunday morning. You say... Go and do what God has called you to do and bring the kingdom. So often our answer in the church is, great, come in, come in, bring your gifts into the church. And sometimes that is right. But more often than not, 95% of the time we need to say, go and be empowered to bring the kingdom where God has placed you. Go and do the stuff. You're uniquely gifted to do what God has given you to do. You know, my, my Lauren, she was working in a nursery and so she decided to try and change the culture which was one of grumbling and complaining. And so she introduced into the staff culture Thankful Thursdays. And so on Thankful Thursdays in the staff room, she said, why don't we just for five minutes start giving thanks for things that are going well? And suddenly, just by doing a little simple action, a culture begins to change. Why? Because she's being salt and light in her workplace. Another friend of mine is a, a one of only three female prison governors in the whole of the country running a very, very demanding job, demanding staff, and she's, she's beginning to transform the culture of the prison in which she works. You know, it's just simple things like when staff members have a bereavement, they now send flowers. It's amazing, just one simple act of kindness can begin to change a cultural environment, can begin to change the feeling of a workplace, simply because you're being salt and light where God has placed you. Where is God calling you to engage with the kingdom? 
You know, we've been hammering on about this message for a few years now in Bedford and we counted up the other day and in the last three years alone, 34 separate people in our church have started a business. I love that. <laughs> I love that. You know, I, I do want to find the next church planters and I do want to find more elders and I do want to find those, but I am rejoicing that 34 people have started businesses from music tuition to developing apps to technology to different things that are going on in the community. That is to be celebrated. And I want to give you a challenge. What are you celebrating in the context of the church? Are you celebrating the works of men and women who bring the kingdom where God has placed them in the marketplace? Because we should, because that's holy work unto the Lord. You know, if you're a gardener, you should garden to the glory of God. You should do a jig and rejoice and worship. I am doing the best gardening I can for Jesus. Do the best job you can because it's holy unto the Lord. He cares about it all. And then lastly, we need to think through the lens of kingdom people. Again, I love big churches. I'm part of a big church. But God doesn't actually need big churches to change a nation. He needs big people. Big people. People who are big on the inside, who know who they are, who have, as I said earlier, banished the gospel of false humility and understand, I have been fashioned by God to reign with him. Big people. And the key quality about big people in God is that they are free from competitions, insecurity, and jealousy. That's what I love about big people. One of my, my favorite characters in all of Scripture is Barnabas. Barnabas the encourager. Because he just does not care about being top dog. His whole ethos is, I want others to thrive. You, know, you notice in the story of Acts, when the story first starts and the first missionary journey starts in Acts, is always Barnabas first and then Saul. But pretty soon the order switches around and it's Saul and then Barnabas. And I think Barnabas would have rejoiced in that because he was the very one that got Saul in the game. He was the one who said, I believe in you before anyone else does, come and join me. Because Barnabas was big on the inside. He's like, I want you to do what God has called you to do and I'm gonna help you to do it. I love that. He was big on the inside. There was no insecurity. There was no tribalism. There was no competition. He's like, actually, it's not important that my voice is heard. It's important that his voice is heard. This is part of a kingdom mentality. We empower people to become spiritual giants. Here's my question. Are you raising spiritual minnows or spiritual giants? And I've discovered in my own life that to encourage people into greatness, I have to first deal with my own heart issues. Because you always reduce people down to the level of your own dysfunctions. Sorry, that wasn't very good news, was it? We tend to always reduce people down to the level of our own dysfunctions. My heart issues can end up defining how big people are allowed to grow around me. If I've not dealt with my own jealousy or my own need to be the best performer or to be the loudest voice, then I will always want people to be smaller than me. My heart issue defines how big people can grow. So my question is, are you raising spiritual giants or spiritual minnows? Barnabas raised spiritual giants. Jealousy and competition are two issues that crop up again and again in the the team of Jesus. I love the honesty of scripture. 
You know, in every one of the Gospels, there is this argument about who's going to be the greatest. <laughs> Just love that. Everyone, I'm going to be top dog. No, I'm going to be top dog. I'm going to sit on the throne next to Jesus. No, I'm going to sit on the throne. And there's, there's this kind of competitive thing going on in the team of Jesus. It's interesting. I think there's two things interesting about that. Number one, they believed that they were born for greatness, which they were, but it was an immature version of it. <laughs> they began to compete and lock, lock horns with one another. And so Jesus began to deal with their heart on the journey. You know, and if you've never been jealous in the church, you may have been running with spiritual midgets. Because when you start running with big people, it will certainly draw out any competition that's inside you still. I've had to deal with more jealousy since being at King's Arms than ever before in the church because I'm running with some spiritual giants. I'm running with people that are like doing incredible stuff. And I'm like, that's amazing. I feel quite small right now. And suddenly God's highlighting something in me that needs to change, that needs to shift if I'm going to release the kingdom in the environment in which I'm in. When you empower people and they start overtaking you, you might have some heart issues to deal with. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's one thing to say, I want my sons and daughters to run past me until they start running past you. <laughs> it sounds great on a tweet, but when they actually start running past you, you're like, I'm not sure how I feel about this. You know, you're doing more than I've ever done and you're doing it quicker than I ever learned how to do it. I'm not sure I'd like this. <laughs> And suddenly I've got to deal with my own small-mindedness. If you've got to be top dog or the most significant voice, then you're not going to release the kingdom in the way that God wants. You know, I I remember teaching my son how to play guitar. It took about five minutes. Uh, (laughs) I taught him the Christian chords, you know. So (laughs) the things that I knew. And uh, then he got the rest from YouTube. And, uh, you know, just, just quickly just was like, whoo, you know, way off in the distance. And then occasionally he would kind of invite me up to his room to have a jam. You know, he'd kind of condescend to let me go up. And so he'd hand me the acoustic guitar while he was wailing like Eddie Van Halen. And I'm just, I'm there playing G and C for about an hour <laughs> till my fingers are bleeding. And he's like, whoo. And I'm just looking at him thinking, how are you doing that? Like, I did not teach you how to do that. That's amazing. And suddenly you're watching someone who's just overtaking you. But here's the thing, as a father, that actually is a delight, isn't it? In a father and culture, you celebrate that. You're like, yes, that's amazing. You're brilliant. And that's the kind of culture in the church that actually empowers people to bring the kingdom in the way that God has called them to. When we have a culture that says, yes. I believe in you. I celebrate who you are in God. Go and do it. Go and be the best you that you can be. All that God has placed in you, go and give it expression. Bring the kingdom. Remember, you're not a spiritual minnow. You are called to be a spiritual giant and I'm totally behind you. If we're gonna change the world, we've got to do what Barnabas did and jolly well celebrate the greatness that we see in one another. Now, some of you even struggle with me saying that because you think, well, that sounds very proud. Listen, he's crowned you with glory and honor. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And so often the key to our own breakthrough is celebrating the breakthrough of other people. 
<laughs> isn't it? Sometimes God's looking at how we will steward other people's breakthrough to see if we can be entrusted with our own. I'll just finish with this story before we land for lunch. For, for years in Bedford, we've been praying that God would open blind eyes and heal sight issues. And you know, we'd had prayer meetings for it. We'd prayed for lots of people, not seeing really anybody healed or improved in their condition. And then we heard of another church in Bedford that had seen this incredible healing of someone who was 97% blind with muscular cone dystrophy. I mean, just like a, it was a stunning miracle. And uh, it was one of those family services and the theme was the, the, the blind man where Jesus puts the mud on his eyes. And one of the children had this bright idea, let's get some mud and put it on Auntie Agnes's eyes and pray for her. And, uh, you know, she, she, uh, she, she said yes. And so they prayed for this lady and just, just stunning, I mean, just sight totally restored. I mean, just like stunning miracle. And so we heard about this and, you know, you've got one of two responses. You can either go the glum route and like, We've been praying for that. That's not fair. Like, we've been asking for that. How come they got it? You know, this should have happened in our place. But instead, thankfully, we're like, right, let's get this lady and the pastor of this church to come to our church and just share the story so that we can celebrate what God is doing. Because the truth is, their victory is our victory. And so she, she came and shared a story and then just the whole church just went nuts. Just like, whoa, Yes! Why? Because her success was our success. And it was after that moment that we began to sing healing in our own church in an increased way. When you celebrate other people, it creates room for your own breakthrough. So I would encourage you to spot the greatness in one another. You know that discerning of spirits is not just about discerning what the enemy's doing, it's discerning who we are in God. Jesus comes to Simon Peter who had foot and mouth disease. He was a clown. He was always making a mess. He was anything but rock-like. Jesus says, you're rocky and I'm going to build my church on you. I think everyone else would have thought, you got that word wrong. (laughs) What's Jesus doing? He's seeing with the eyes of faith. He's saying, this is who you are. You're called to be a rock and a pillar. He's calling out the greatness. We need to call kingdom greatness out of one another. And I'll finish with this. I love this quote by George McLeod. He said this, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, on a crossroad so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and Latin and Greek, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and the thieves curse and the soldiers gamble, because that is where he died and that is what he died about, and that is where Christians should be and what Christians should be all about. Go and bring the kingdom. This is the transition shift. Not just the gathered church, that is important, but scattered kingdom.